Hello and welcome to episode two of Public Health Disrupted, the brand new podcast from UCL Health of the Public. I'm Zahn Van Tulliken. I'm a doctor, a writer, a TV presenter, and I'm prepared to do pretty much anything to start a conversation on public health. And I do mean anything, whether it's editing medical journals or experimenting on my body for children's television. And I'm Rochelle Burgess. I'm a community health psychologist specializing in community-based approaches to health, and I'm a lecturer at UCL's Institute for Global Health. I'm also a self-confessed hippie, um, which means I love talking about the importance of community, solidarity, social change, hugs, and all of those sorts of things to pretty much everyone and anyone who will listen. This podcast is about public health, but more importantly, it's about the systems that need disrupting to make public health better. Join us monthly as we challenge the status quo and ask what needs to change and why. Each week, we'll be joined by activists, scholars, artists, comedians, industry professionals, and anyone else we can think of. We want as many people from inside UCL and out to join in our public health conversation. We're calling this podcast Public Health Disrupted because that is exactly what we want to do. We want to break down disciplinary, sectoral and geographic boundaries. We want to really understand the diverse and complex issues impacting our health. There's no area of public health as we currently know it that we're not willing to shake up. In today's episode, we're going to be exploring how comedy and humour can be used to improve health for all. Our first guest is award-winning comedian and author Laura Lex, whose name sounds like a superhero, which makes me super excited. I love Laura, and I've watched a bunch of her stuff online, and it's great and beyond excited to have her with us today. Um, She's picked up a host of awards and nominations for her comedy, which includes shows Tyrannosaurus Lex and Trying. She's also featured on popular TV shows, including Roast Battle, Live at the Apollo, Mock the Week, and many more. As well as performing, Laura recently released her first book, Clock Actually, (laughs) Imaginary Life with Football's Most Sensitive Heartthrob, inspired by a series of her tweets imagining life with football FC manager Jurgen Klopp, which went viral and amassed over 5.6 million views during lockdown. Our second guest is Dr. Matt Winning. He's the kind of person who intimidates someone like me because he is a London-based Scottish comedian, so far so good, but he is also a highly qualified environmental economist who performs live climate change comedy. He hosts the podcast Operation Earth. He has a TEDx talk about the importance of using humour to discuss climate change. He has a PhD in climate change policy. He is an active researcher at the UCL Institute for sustainable resources, combining the two worlds of comedy and environmental issues in an attempt to hilariously help save the planet. What are the rest of us doing? Not much. I'm not doing much at all. All right. Um, I think we'll start with Laura. Laura, your stand-up show, Trying, has been described as brutally honest. And as somebody who has been through that, process of trying and I loathe that word (laughs) it's such a weird word like you know I I I mean my husband said to me people ask me for trying and these are my mom's friends who like knew me since I was like three and why are they asking me about this thing that I'm doing with my wife to create a baby (laughs) but in addition to sort of that idea of like the awkwardness around that term and that you know that conversation you, you talk about a lot of really important things like our emotional well-being and our, and our mental health in and around this process of 
of trying to create a new life. And some people might think that's not immediately good comedic material, but you know, <laughs> I would love to hear why why you've pitched that as something. A lot of people sort of don't talk about that enough. They don't. We women don't talk about these things we go through enough. And I just am so inspired by your decision to blow the lid off with that. So I'd love to hear about what brought you to that place and why you think it's so important for us to focus on. I think it's it's such a boringly simple answer, really. It's just that because that's what I'd been going through for two years, it was all I was thinking about. So it's all I was, it, it was all I could write about because I don't think my brain separates like the bad things happening and the things that would potentially be good for comedy out. It just goes, hey, you're thinking about trying to get pregnant. So it provides jokes about it. <laughs> And it's very unhelpful. <laughs> but <laughs> when it came to sort of going, right, okay, the antidepressants have kicked in and the therapy's working and I need to get back to work. What have I got to start scraping new stuff together from? All I've been thinking about was this stuff. I think humans are amazing for finding laughter in sadness. It's one of our instant reactions to things. I think it's partly cultural, but it is also, I think, human nature you know we get down and then we try and cheer ourselves back up again and the reason I I think trying resonated so much was that there was just so much mess in that show like I was trying for a baby that is gross for many reasons you know not just the people asking you if you're banging each other but also like people giving you tips on how to do it and you go oh god go away (laughs) like the number of people that told me about oh just go on holiday and you'll relax and and it will happen and you think I've been to Greece I've been to Spain I've been to Scotland Uh, where 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 is the swimming pool full of relaxing juice that is supposed to work now as a public health podcast we should say you shouldn't (laughs) be doing it in the swimming pool no no maybe maybe that's where I was going wrong So that was sort of one strand of it being messy. And then my psychological reaction to it, because I had this terrible eco-anxiety where I, I wanted a baby and I I still can't switch off my biological and psychological desire for children, but also the reality of the planet being as it was, I got into such a state about was I doing the wrong thing and having a child and was the sustainable thing to do to adopt and not have children, but how do I switch off this desire to be pregnant and to give birth? And so that was another messy, messy, messy strand. And then there was the strand where we didn't fall pregnant anyway. So that was another messy strand. And I just think there was so much in that show where there was just so much to kind of go and all this and all this and all this and I don't have any answers and I get to the end of that show and I'm still not pregnant and I'm still not fixed <laughs> in in quotation marks and I I don't know any more than I knew before but there you go there's what it all was you if any of this has happened to you you're not on your own and I think that's it isn't it I've always found that comedy and and laughter is sort of like our basic sharing as you say you know it's 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 a basic human nation nature to connect and engage with each other in that way and and the heavy stuff like this is all heavy and and so much of life is heavy and I feel like laughing through that you know you know you're not alone if somebody shares a laugh with you then they see it and they see and I think it reflects the reality of what mental health issues are or are for me anyway that one of the things that stopped me getting help for such a long time in my life was that I thought 
I thought depression and mental health issues were only those characters I'd seen in stuff where they couldn't get out of bed and then they'd turn to alcohol and rinse their lives and lost everything. And I thought you didn't get help until that had happened. I thought that because I was still going to work and I hadn't cheated on my husband and walked out and ruined everything, that I probably wasn't that bad, but I was just miserable all the time. And so I wanted to put something out that went, that sort of said, yes, what in the morning I would be sobbing on the floor, having a panic attack or crying my heart out about this. And then in the afternoon, I would find the fact that our fish got pregnant before I did very funny. And that is, that is one reality of mental health. And, and I'm still up here on the stage being buzzy and and fun and smiley and I'm on antidepressants like I wanted to put out a different image of what people with mental health issues are to show that it all happens at once in the same day it isn't like an eight-month comatose experience and then you slowly get better it can be a complete milestone and you deserve help whichever state of that you're in yeah I mean that is perhaps the most perfect PSA for mental health that I could think of that your, what you've just said right there in the sense that it doesn't look like what you think it looks like. Yeah. <laughs> and you just need to talk to people about it so you can get the help you need because a lot of people, I, I mean, I guess the terminology word, if I think about it, high functioning, because it's this idea around yeah. our functionality and, and the way that gets performed in society. Like you can be incredibly high functioning <laughs> and really still be having a really horrible time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's part of the messiness too. I think I learned there's there's no martyrdom to not getting the help. I think because I got diagnosed with depression when I was like 16 or 15 or something. And so they said, would you like antidepressants? And I was 15. So I was like, no, I'm not going to be drugged up. I'll, I'll stop my old life out. And then it took me another 16 years or however long it was, 15 years to go, who am I not on these pills for? Like, I get that they're not for everybody and it's everybody's choice to make with their doctor, but I'm not going around telling everybody I meet, hey, I cope without being on antidepressants, by the way. I'm just sad. So why not take them? I'm the only one that would know or be improved by being on them. But you get into these weird little mental cul-de-sacs with yourself where you just go, who am I doing this for? I love the idea of boasting about not being on antidepressants, <laughs> even though you're really unhappy. Yeah. Happy people <laughs> never boast about it. But if you're miserable, you're like, yeah, I'm, but I'm just toughing this out. Yeah, exactly. Like, but why? But why though? Who are you toughing this out for? You're sad. She's so miserable, but she still won't take the antidepressants. Yeah. <laughs> it's so heroic. she's such such fun at parties all those anecdotes she's got about not taking pills (laughs) do you think the stuff you're 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 talking about is so profoundly personal and experiential but they're all it's also so widely experienced by so many couples and to try and have a public public conversation about this to try and influence people's thinking without comedy I would say is you would be missing a huge, huge, huge part of an important conversation. That it would there are certain things you're doing that would be impossible for academia to do. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I think it was a big part in me coming to talk about it was because for such a long time 
I had to avoid all mentions of of climate change and stuff. Like I, re- I remember things like listening to No Such Thing as a Fish, which is a delightful podcast and full of little facts. And what and I remember one of the facts that they pulled out was that all hotels coming to a certain area now I can't remember it was like the Canary Islands or somewhere in Southeast Asia all hotels being built there now have to be five star so that they can afford the water because of climate change making access to fresh water so difficult they need the investment and that fact being presented on no such thing as a fish as a sort of delightful little side fact left me so cold and broken from hearing it triggered me so badly I haven't listened to that podcast since because I now just associate it with that so I had to cut out all mention I had to mute all words I couldn't bear it and then part of coming back from that and rehabilitating was realizing that if I have to avoid all this stuff like this I'm no help to the cause and the progress for a greener world so I've got to find a way to to touch these subjects again and I wonder if other people feel similar like it's such a big messy horrible subject that you feel so complicit in and helpless about and you know you just feel trapped with it I think a lot of people do that people do switch off to it because they just go well I don't know I don't know what's worse I'm told avocados are worse than beef if the beef came from the garden next to mine but the avocado came from around the world but I'm supposed to be vegan but my dog's carbon footprint is bigger than mine like so if you can find a way to kind of go oh I know I agree here we go let's let's roll the subject into everyday talking so we're not so scared of it I think is a is an important thing to do Matt I mean moving away from the profound individual difficulties that Laura's describing onto something more cheerful your work is around climate change and the coming apocalypse are people more willing to hear the frankly terrifying messages that I think you have to distribute if you do it as a comedian compared to doing it as an academic? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think so. I think it's there's something that changes when you're doing comedy uh, as opposed to delivering kind of a straight, serious lecture. I think it's to do with them, especially with slightly contentious subjects like climate change, where the messenger, you're more trusted as a comedian than you are sometimes as an academic which is weird. You would think academics would necessarily be some of the most, you know, scientists would be some of the most trusted people, doctors, etc. But there's sort of a levity to, you need a kind of combination of, the, of of both, I think. And I think that's where I've somehow managed to strike a nice balance in that I do have the knowledge and the levity in order to be able to, to sort of communicate it, but also not come across as like, I am telling you all this stuff and you need to take it really seriously and or whatever. It's not ramming it down people's throats. They don't feel like they're being lectured. It is that that term, like we we work in academia and um, do lectures. And in academia, it's like, oh, you're, you do lectures. That's a positive thing. But to most people, being lectured to is not a positive thing. So it's bringing it into everyday life, but it's sort of not you know, lecturing people sounds like it's kind of uh, ramming it down their throats. And I think comedy is, has a way of making you seem uh, self-deprecating and a bit kind of lower status. But if you're able to combine that with sort of knowledge and background in the subject, then it actually has been, I've, I've found really helpful um, in trying to get the message across to people. Do you mix them up? So obviously you're doing comedy shows and you're giving formal academic lectures. Are your lectures 
funny and in the comedy shows you are obviously including your academic work but when yeah. you're giving a lecture do you are you in a totally different mode if i went to see you at ucl teaching or giving a presentation to the faculty i'd, I'd say they are quite distinct probably I, I normally try and put at least a couple of jokes at the very top of, the, of any sort of boring academic lectures to just be like i know how to talk to people i'd quite like to do it but one it would take quite a lot of time to then make those academic lectures funny in a level of detail that's much harder than than doing it to the public where we all have a kind of greater shared experience so you know if you're trying to make jokes about really specific references to papers there's not a big audience for that um is what i'm saying and also there's something to be said for people that have traditional views of what academia is and i think if i came in and just was trying to be funny and and make it silly all the time I don't know how well my career would progress. I, I'm sort of slightly... I, I think once, maybe once I'm a bit further down my career, the lectures will become increasingly, increasingly funnier. I don't know. I would bet that post-promotion, everything will just become comedic. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, I, tr I try to remember back to when I was a, a, you know, a student, and I always did much prefer when you had someone that was at least semi-entertaining as your lecturer for that lecture you're like oh good i can actually sort of it does make a huge difference yeah. um, and i think it's a hugely undervalued part of academia is the, the communicate you know we're not really taught how to communicate and academics tend to be pretty bad communicators and that's why they become academics in the first place so it, <laughs> sorry bit of a paradoxical thing so you know this sort of thing where we we do podcasts and we talk to people is is it's something academia should have been doing a long long time ago rochelle i don't feel like you're restricted by this sort of behavior that we expect academics to have i mean i i go to conferences occasionally and i cannot understand why people seem to be making things almost deliberately boring like it seems occasionally things seem sort of so long-winded and convoluted the message is so buried in a way that if you were trying to engage if you were doing a ted talk maybe not even something funny you would have to make it a bit more sparkly but we seem to have permission to be boring in a way i, I don't know and i feel like you're not you're not one of those people that's a very sort of nice thing to hear it's always nice to hear that people don't think you're boring. I mean, I definitely resonate with what Matt's been saying. Coming up uh, in academia and sort of wanting to be an academic, I always felt like I didn't fit. And one of the things that my students used to say to me early on when I started teaching during my PhD, and they always used to say, well, it's so much nicer when we hear from you because you speak like a person. And that's that's really it. But a part of that has actually been, I'm always disclosing something new on this show, but <laughs> basically I have dyspraxia and I found out during my PhD and it just means I have really difficult time with speech sometimes and pronouncing certain words. So I, academia is full of like multisyllabic terms and whatever. And so I have to speak like a human in order to, to get through anything. And it's been sort of a proxy of just like, survival and linking back a bit to some of the stuff that Laura was talking about and sort of like you do things to, to how do we survive all these things and how do we make sense of our survival I would use comedy to be like I can't talk about things in the way other academics can because I literally cannot pronounce that word there's too many syllables so I'm just going to say it like this and that's how I started communicating differently in academia based on the necessity to like I wouldn't have survived it otherwise but I think academia is changing. Like there's so much more capacity and space and what always changes it, funding 
to force science to be in better communication and dialogue with society and communities and in order to make it worthwhile, really. And it sort of makes me think a little bit about something that's come up with both Matt and Laura is this this idea and this notion of communication and the messenger and the message. And I, I think we often underestimate in public health how important getting those two pieces right are. The fact that the message must be trusted and the person it's coming from must be trusted and the content must be in a way that people can engage with. And I wonder, Matt, do you think humor is something that we can use to get through the opaqueness of what you're trying to communicate? Because an environmental economist, to me, sounds like those two words make sense to me and in combination they cease to make sense. I have a joke where I say it sounds like a bit of an oxymoron environmental economist because like you tell people environmental they're like yep got that and then you say economist and they go no not so sure I tell them it's a bit like being a human rights lawyer you know what I mean it's like you're still a lawyer deep down (laughs) but yeah I think comedy can really help to as you say get through the opaqueness I mean Laura Laura touched on it really well and said you know everything's so complicated with especially with topics like climate change um, and you know aspects of health this year I'm an author on the Lancet countdown on health and climate change so I've started actually bringing health uh, and climate change together and I find it's a really effective way of talking to people as well you know health is actually a really good way of talking to people about climate change because everybody kind of understands not you know the the, the intricacies of, of, of health issues but they understand what health is and why it's important um, much more so than some of the issues around climate change so it's finding ways to talk about it that people understand and I think comedy is a good way of sort of breaking down you have to simplify everything you have to make it simple for the joke to work and you also have to make it shared experience so it has to be about something you all know about if you're making jokes about something that only you know about and other people don't you're not going to get very far so it, it requires you to, to do a lot of things and to implement a lot of skills that you need, sort of need to do to reach the public anyway I think with com- with comedy so I, I sort of stumbled across it if I'm honest I was already doing comedy for about eight years before I even started really talking about climate change. And I think I had mostly been using comedy as a way to not think about climate change, if I'm honest. I found it difficult, but I'm glad I waited that long, uh, kind of eight years before I even started trying to talk about difficult issues using comedy because I don't think it had been particularly good enough until that point in time. So it really helped that I waited a while and then started to kind of apply the skills that I'd learned over kind of almost a decade to a topic that is quite hard to talk about. So, you know, I think a lot of this is is about skills that we need to learn, but it's hard. You know, not everybody can spend eight years going out five times a week doing comedy shows just to then be able to communicate some sort of health issue. That's, that's not sustainable. Anyway, I'm rambling now. Laura, the topics you've talked about and Matt are sensitive, anxiety-creating intimate, personal, and and frequently quite bleak. And yet comedy is an incredibly, it's really the only vehicle to do the things you're talking about in, in, in the ways that you're describing. I guess there's a temptation then for anyone making public health policy or kind of with a grand vision of public health to go, look, why don't we use comedians to do, you know, make everything a bit more fun. And then we can get we can get comedians to talk about cancer screening and vaccinations and people doing more exercise and going to their GPs a bit more. Maybe we can improve anyone's health. What do you think about the value of comedy being used for public health and what should the relationship be? 
it's complicated, isn't it? Because yes, on on the one hand, you you think yes, we are professional communicators. It's what we do. We're good people to spread a message. But on the other hand, I think there can be a a bit of a backlash to that every now and again with the sense of people going, well, hang on a minute, where the hell should I listen to you? (laughs) You're a clown, usually with some sort of privilege or at least perceived privilege because of what you do for a living. You know, you're not you're not one of us. You're either the elite entertainment or it's all right for you. You're rich or it's. So I think it's it's one of those things that needs to be done with a level of subtlety that I'm not sure people in charge have access to. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's like they are at the moment, aren't they using, like there was that story not so long ago about using sensible celebrities to urge people to get the vaccine. So I think they kind of do sort of try and do that. But I think it's one of the things that kind of makes me feel a bit ooky about comedy about issues is that I don't want comedy to to, to tell me what I should and shouldn't be doing about something. Yeah. I want comedy to tell me about stuff and then I'll make my own mind up. It was something I really tried quite hard to do with trying, was not to lay any conclusions down, but just to go, this is my experience and whatever that brings up for you is fine. But I made that show so personally about my mental health because I didn't want to go and here's how you should treat people with mental health actually this is how we want to be treated because I don't know everybody's different I'm got a clue and it wasn't like uh don't tell women trying for baby this and that because some women trying for baby might lap up advice from other people so it's not my place to speak for all women but what I wanted to do was and what I think comedy can do brilliantly is you're allowed to be utterly personal you're allowed to tell anecdotes it's the opposite of academia this is something I'm continually saying to my students when I'm teaching stand-up make it personal it's the opposite of a thesis or an essay you're not looking at the detail and then extrapolating out to a big theory comedy is involved in the detail work on the detail don't tell me a vague story about feminism tell me about you going to the supermarket and your activity there that is what makes comedy very different to everything else and and what makes it engaging and why you don't feel like you're having stuff rammed down your throat when comedy is done well but I think that to me sounds like what theory should be about if we sort of think about theory as the pairs of glasses we put on to make sense of the world then which is how I sort of explain to my students what theory is then it should allow you to see the detail and understand some of the why behind the detail. And so almost in a way, I feel like bringing more of what of the personal and the honesty and the reality of what these big concepts mean and getting as many of those stories and perspectives out there in ways where we have this shared language of laughter or emotion is the thing that could blow the whole lid off of it. I think really we have that hesitancy to say, oh, we don't need it. But actually I would say that what you've said is 100% what we should be doing because what we've done before hasn't worked ultimately. Absolutely. If you boil down to a conclusion, 
you're boiling off a lot of steam that is people's personal experience. So like with my own experience of, of trying for a baby and then not being able to have one, I find that very messy because it's not that I am biologically infertile. I don't have ovaries that don't work. I haven't rinsed the IVF system and, and come out the other side broken money-wise by rinsed there. That's the wrong word. I don't mean like you've exploited it. I mean, like I haven't been through it and exhausted myself and rinsed myself through it. I've can't have children because I can't do it because every time we start trying, I get into such a psychological mess that my health completely fails. So my own experience of talking about not being able to have children, I think I try to work out what language to use to show other people that you can say I can't have children and it doesn't have to mean I've got a cloggy womb or whatever. <laughs> it means, you know, that that, that phrase can encompass... You've got to use confusing stuff. medical terminology. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, I, I'm a doctor. I don't know if I've mentioned it. <laughs> I think talking about the messiness of these situations, like, you know, with the I'm depressed, but sometimes I'm very fun and funny, <laughs> that it there's so many different realities to all these things. And having a a platform for want of a less modern phrase I think having space to put the detail of one of those messy ones out there and go so messiness is okay and I'm not embarrassed to say this I think is important yeah I mean I would completely agree with everything Laura said as well and would just reiterate the idea of comedy being so personal and people go to see comedians really because they are interested in the person um, and those that person's story or who they are i mean okay there's some comedians where you go that it's like you know tim vine or milton jones or whoever that's just jokes 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 and people go and see them to laugh and i'd say every other comedian people go to see because they're interested in that person and their mm. view of the world and their experiences so you can really only use comedy to talk about health issues if that comedian specifically already is interested and has a personal mm -hmm. story that they want to tell mm -hmm. about health issues i think if you just got tim vine to come and write 30 one-liners about health i don't think anyone would start getting vaccinated more <laughs> um, that, is a, that is a lovely conclusion So as part of our interest in sort of this idea of disruption, we've asked people every month to think about a piece of art or, or, or music or poetry that has disrupted or changed the way you think about the world. It could be something recently or it could be something from a long time ago, just trying to bring a bit of tangibility. I don't know. I think mine would be, and I'm sorry that this is so on the nose, but I really am a comedian and nothing else, <laughs> but it would be Eddie Izzard's Glorious, I think, which was one of Eddie's early shows. And it was the first, Eddie was the first person I knew what a comedian was. And I remember there being a bit in the middle of the show where Eddie's talking about Princess Diana and then says, well, my mum died when I was seven and my brother was 11 and no one gave a shit. And then they just seamlessly moved back into the convers back into the comedy. And at the time as a child, I listened to Glorious when I was far too young to be listening to Glorious, but I didn't understand that. I didn't understand why you'd bring the tone down like that. But I loved everything else about that show and so did me and my sister. And now looking back, I 
understand that but that show just made me laugh so much as as like an 11 year old or however old I was and it was the first time I knew what stand-up was I love that yeah I love that too I was also a very big Eddie art fan as a <laughs> as a, a bur- burgeoning stand-up and as a young man yeah definitely was the first person that I watched and was like oh this is something I want to watch again and again and again you know I'd, I'd watch the same jokes again and again and again and love it i think what i'll i'll mention something a bit further down the line because there's so many things in life that do disrupt you in good and bad ways and i think it's important i think disruption is important to development and to being able to see things in a more rounded way i remember seeing a show by kim noble in 2014 and i'd already been doing stand up there for about maybe I don't know, five years or six years. And I thought I thought I had an idea of what stand-up comedy was at that point in time. And then I saw this show by Kim Noble, uh, I think called You're Not Alone, that sort of changed my perspective of what it would be. And he was talking about uh, his father's dementia and it was very weird, almost sort of, um, you know, performance art stuff. And it, But it was funny and I still felt like I laughed more than that at that than I did at a lot of things and it was very uncomfortable um to watch and i feel like that disrupted my view of what an art form could be and i think anything that you see that is that sort of just completely changes your perspective on what something is is really effective uh, or, or really affecting you've been listening to public health disrupted this episode was presented by me rochelle burgess and zan van Teleken, produced by ucl health of the public and edited by karis bradley our guests today were laura lex and matt winning If you'd like to hear more of these podcasts from UCL Health of the Public, subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit www.ucl.ac.uk slash health dash of dash public forward slash. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities that are open to everyone.